Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Af Malhotra here and we are on Straight Talk. So, as you know, one of the most important aspects of my personal development and um, looking at life in a very different way is an institution called Diversity Economics Institute that I built uh, a few months ago, actually. And a huge part of my focus has been on this whole area of diversity economics, trying to build the business case for diversity and inclusion in global workplaces. And there's so many dimensions to this, there's so many facets and aspects to this. And one important aspect is this community that um, you know, I've been watching and uh, you know, admiring uh, the LGBTQ community, and particularly because of the gentleman who's on the show today, who uh, happens to be related to me. So I'm privileged and I've been uh, experiencing his journey over the course of the last two or three years plus, and the fantastic books he's written, the discourse, the music he's produced, and just the poetry he's, um, he's uh, you know, crafted. All of this combined has educated me and given me a perspective on uh, what it means to be diverse, what it means to be queer. And it's, it's challenged a lot of my personal beliefs and perceptions, I have to be honest with you. And I think if I've been converted and I've seen the light and I've realized uh, what the opportunities are for a better society and what the gaps are, then you can too. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Sharif Ranika uh, on the show. Sharif, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me off. And yeah, I didn't know that, uh, that you were watching me so closely. Oh, always, always. And uh, I'm so happy to know that, you know, yeah. your first book, Straight to Normal, was described by many as a, a revelation. And this book, Queer Sapien, is, uh, I would say, without question, a revolution, especially when it comes to educating the C-suites in global workplaces. And we know that's a huge problem. It's a huge issue. You've tackled it in your book. So today is about you. It's about your personal story. And it's yeah. about, of course, uh, queer sapien. Now, before I start the conversation, how do we get hold of this book? Because we have a huge global audience. Where can someone procure, acquire this book? Is it on Amazon, Audible? Where do it's, we get it's, it? it's, it's on Amazon. It's not on Audible. It's it's just on Amazon. And uh, I do know it's available in UK, uh, in Canada, in the US. Uh, and uh, I, I, I believe that it will soon be available in Australia. Okay. So yeah, it's it's you know it's not easy to to get to other markets uh, for them to be uh, locally produced, but the uh, but what what my publisher has done this time around is that every time their order is being placed, they're being produced locally, and uh, and so the quality of the production is far better than what happened with the earlier book. Right. The early book was being sent from India every time an order was placed. So I, I've I've had some folks who've come down from Germany and they showed me the copy of the book. It looks it looks wow, and they don't have a like a flap, you know, like this mm. one has mm. a flap and, mm. and things. So this is printed on the hardcover and it's it's looking really nice. Yeah. Fantastic. So, well, we'll be sure to make sure we get our copy, and I have a whole bunch. Uh, here that I will send over to various people that I believe should be reading this. And before I start this conversation, I want I want to share something with the audience. And I believe this, you know, it's like an affirmation and you know a form of manifestation that I think is going to happen. Uh, and I shared this with Sharif earlier. I believe every CEO in every listed company on the planet should have this book as a mandatory read. I've said this before. 
And one of the first CEOs who should receive this is Tim Cook at Apple. And so somehow we need to get this message across to Tim Cook. We'll do it with you. And I'm sure you're connected and you'll get to him. But Tim Cook needs to, to disperse this, not just to the Apple employees, but to every other uh, listed company uh, and every CEO who's trying desperately to get DEI right. And as we know, it's a long, it's a long way off. So, and we'll discuss that. So let's go right into it. So uh, Sharif, tell us um, about uh, Sharif. What do we need to know about you? Of course, I'm not asking you to go through all of the books, but you know, in a snapshot, for those who don't know who you are, uh, what's your life journey? And of course, life as a gay man, not just yeah. in India, but, but in the world, you will um, talk to millions and millions of people um, through, this, through this platform. Yeah, so yeah. over to you, the ball's in your court, my man. I think, uh, you know, I, I love to quote uh, Bob Dylan, so, but that doesn't really help answer the question. Because Dylan said, I am who I am, whoever that might be. And I think that the beauty in that is that I am a lot like you, but I'm also different. Yeah. Uh, so I think I've had a very, uh, after you'd know that, after you'd know that, because I've had a very unplanned career. Uh, I think there was a point I didn't want to work. I wanted to sit at home and do what my mom used to do is uh, be a naturopath and so that I didn't have to step out of home. But I didn't realize that the desire to stay at home was also part of my fears and inhibitions of stepping out because I right. think somewhere there was this fear lurking. Yeah. But I'm I'm someone who who's I think has has had the fortune and uh, you know of having people around who sort of knew some of the areas of you know mm. that I got into. For example, okay, it wasn't uh, publishing which I started out with mm. at Penguin Books, and. Uh, but when I got into journalism, it was my eldest brother who said that you used to like to write. So I'll set up an interview. You should meet this person. And Pioneer happened at that time under some of the best journalists that were there at that point in time. And even when you look back now, uh, they're the ones who set benchmarks. And uh, so I, I got into journalism. I got out of journalism, moved into the dot-com field, but it was more news research and then moved into PR, which I didn't plan. None of these were really planned. It's not like I woke up like, you know, nowadays everyone says, oh, I want to, you know, do this and I want to be that and I want to be, and we didn't have those choices and, and we didn't have dreams being crafted through advertising and media mm. or whatever it was. So, so in a way I'm lucky. So I, I took chances. I got into public relations, communications, handling image, reputation, advocacy and public affairs. Uh, and then I felt frustrated and I think that was when my own, you know, I was seeking freedom. I was seeking freedom from being politically correct. I was seeking freedom from being straight acting. And uh, and I just wanted to explore the world. Uh, it was coming from a space of security and safety and privilege uh, as well as hard work. But uh, And then I got out of that and I didn't know what I'm going to do next. Mm. And I started curating events. I did more music than I did before. Um, been on stage and even curated fundraisers and then came the Rainbow Lit Fest but before the Rainbow Lit Fest happened Straight to Normal after Straight to Normal was depression and from the depression came with the Lit Fest and uh, and through COVID came Queer Sapiens so that's mm. my journey mm. so T tell us a little bit tell us a little bit about um, your first book because uh, you know it was a breakthrough 
moment for you personally. And of course, it was um, it was a powerful it was a powerful book uh, because you um, you know were so vulnerable and you were able to do through through text you were able to open up and I guess that is your secret power your superpower your ability to use the pen or the keyboard and uh, get across your experiences and your messages uh, tell us about that book briefly many probably aren't aware of it hence I just wanted to briefly touch yeah. on it and uh, and just tell us how it was received what what, what did you hear okay. back when you released the book so straight to normal was uh, life uh, my life as a gay man that's the full name of the book mm. so it was it I mean I did attempt to write in 2013 a, a book and uh, but out of the fear of society fear of what would happen to my mom to Ma, to the family, and what would people say, and you know, all of those things. Mm. Uh, I attempted fiction with a, and one of my friends uh, who's now in Finland, she and I would sit together and try to create characters and all that, but it didn't work. And also, I was scared because suddenly in December 2013, uh, homosexuality was recriminalized by the Supreme Court. So, which, which was a bolt out of the blues. We didn't expect it. And and then work took over, and my brother's health, uh, and you know, cancer, which you which you know about. Um, but it was in 2018, about uh, weeks before I turned 50. Uh, Mark came into the room and says, "That book has been waiting. Why don't you do it? It's going to help people." And she made it very clear, also, but she knew me that I wasn't doing this book for my image or for PR purposes or any of that. It was to sort of uh, share a story, but it was also what Anjali Gopalan told me, who was the head of NAS Foundation, who, who led the case from 2001 on reading down uh, 377 and, uh, you know, freeing us as, yeah. as same-sex uh, you know, people, uh, lovers, um, that there wasn't any or enough literature available uh, that covered a pre-377 or a pre-criminalized era of uh, of uh, for the gay community. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one part of it. And second is, as Ma said, it would help others. And we didn't know who those others are, and I didn't either. So that book was more like a coming out story. It's not that I wasn't out, but it was a coming out story which started from pretty much from 1968 when I was born. Uh, my days in Bombay, my school, my first crushes, in moving to Calcutta, uh, not knowing that I was depressed and my attempt to end my life in class eight, uh, moving to Delhi and then suddenly going through a culture which is entirely different from Bombay and Calcutta. Uh, it, it sort of covered everything all the way up uh, to me turning 50 and to when the court uh, passed its verdict to decriminalize homosexuality. So it was all the way up to September 2018. That's what that book was. Mm. Um, there was an incredible response. I mean, the launch, uh, the various places and spaces I went to, there was a lot of curiosity. I think there was also the novelty factor that there was very little, there's, there's, there were almost a handful of memoirs and some of the memoirs were, were to do with, uh, with uh, 
you know, the intersections with HIV, you know, people who were working in that area and, and, and trying to save lives and try to advocate safe sex. Um, there was academic material uh, that was available and there was, you know, uh, a fabulous book like Same Sex Love in India, which was really history and a very powerful book, which was used in the courts as well. So there was very little stuff out there that was first person narrating it. Um, it's, uh, I did go into depression. So there was a point uh, I, I stopped figuring out what people were saying, but it was much later during the Lit Fest and now when Queer Sapien came out, that I've heard, I, I've heard from young folks in their 20s and the mid 20s who read the book and they felt that book was a friend to them. Mm. I've heard uh, people who've passed that book on to their parents to read. And uh, of course, there have been parents who were a little surprised because they found uh, a surprise, not always in a nice way, because there's uh, there's a lot of material out there which uh, talks about uh, getting aroused, you know, mm. or uh, or when even I tried to explain to my mom, uh, you know, that uh, Ma, Ma kept asking me, what is it, you know, what do you go through? So I said, mm. I'm attracted to men. She should explain. So I said, I get aroused, I get a hard on. Mm. So, uh, you know, so it was as simple and as literal as, as, as we're speaking right now. Mm. So it was written like that. It was written about uh, my attraction to crotches and dicks and whatever. Mm. And, 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 and on the breakups and everything else that was happening in the, in the gay scene in Delhi. So, uh, but at the same time, I've heard from parents that, oh God, you know, we don't know that a child can go through this, and you know, the dilemma, the doubt, and uh, to many, as is the case with queer sapien, a lot of people felt that the hero, so to say, was Ma, you know, right. or mother, right. and uh, and 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 I think a lot of people in in the gay world. Oh, would say the same thing, uh, you know. I, eventually, it's the mother, who's who uh, who can be the greatest, uh, you know, sort of savior, shield, support, you know, whatever. And uh, there's so many things actually, and and particularly uh, a mother who's been widowed, you know, and is like a single woman. She fights the same battles in a different mm. way, mm. and uh, so I I think. The book was 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 uh, I would say critically acclaimed. Uh, did it do extremely well? I really don't know. Uh, it did, but I mean, it's it's uh, uh, people have read it and I've bumped into people who suddenly say, "Oh, aren't you the straight to normal guy?" Mm. Like, yeah, you know. So it was, uh, and it sort of tried to say in the book that there are more than one normal. So when I was I was straight, I assumed straight is the only thing, and then I, I for myself, sort of normalized being gay. There were many yeah, no, aspects sorry, of the book that, um, uh, you know, essentially you're telling your story, like you talked about from a young age, all of those moments of uh, transformation. Almost getting, almost getting engaged to a girl. Yes. All that is in the book, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, you know, for those who, I think the two ways of looking at it, and primarily at, at an early stage, for, for the person who's, who's gay, and has come out and the person who's gay has not come out and uh, culture has a lot to do with it you've talked a lot about this in your first book and then of course in queer sapien you talk about these these constructs that we are tied to they're like anchors you know and we most of us 
some of us have realized that we are tied to these anchors. We are like robots, you know, confined by the systems around us. But the courage, and this is an important word, right? The courage to come out, the courage to write something that will open you up pretty much. And uh, to deal with that is is remarkable, is, is really remarkable, which is why that book was for many people provocative and controversial for others enlightening game changing and so on the question i have for you on that book before we move on to queer sapien it's an important question is um now that what it's been a couple of years since you wrote that book is that right it was out 2019 so i wrote it 2018 yeah, yeah. and if you think about Probably outside of the outside of queer sapien outside of you writing this book what have been your biggest learnings post uh, straight to normal about yourself and about society what what has changed in your mind you know when you wrote the book you wrote it with a certain mindset you talked about your mother and how you were compelled to write it it was a service that you were it was your duty to do this for the rest of the world two three years have gone by now what has changed in your psyche in your mindset your attitude i mean you talked about low points and high points just give me a bit of a sense of how your mind has shifted what have you learned now that you didn't know then you know, I, I, okay, so, um, so 2018 is when I submitted the manuscript and it was out in jam. So it's a very short period. So it's almost five years. Uh, I'd say it's about four plus. Um, well, I hit, I wrote that book like a reporter in 27 days. And uh, I don't know how my editor thought I could do that. But I, in fact, uh, delivered it about five days earlier than he expected. And we were aiming for one of the lit fests, which is why we mm. uh, they wanted to put it into print. Um, so what happened is that when I, I didn't have time to comprehend all I wrote because it was like, this happened, that happened, that happened, this happened. You, you, it's like a reporter, you know, like the old time to reporter where you don't, necessarily have to emote on every bit of news, right? Developments. Yeah. It's not like nowadays Indian television where everyone's spicing it up and, and bringing angles and whatever, you know, I mean, so, uh, so it was written with that sort of, uh, in that manner. So I went through the journey of understanding what I wrote only when I started interacting with people. Right. Who started asking questions, whether it was moderators, uh, people who bought the book, already before I reached for an event, went to a fest in a different city or town, but they already knew mm. everything. And I had not really absorbed everything that I'd written. So that started taking me back every now and then in time. And that's what started hurting and uh, uh, getting me to realize the, the pain of certain circumstances I'd been through. Mm. Uh, so it, the depression was also a feeling of a rudderlessness. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, everyone seems to be knowing what all has happened. And uh, and uh, there was that hopelessness. And I had to turn, I didn't have like a nine to five job that I could run to, you know. So I had to sort of save myself uh, at that moment. And uh, I think when I uh, started taking the medication and I, started putting on weight also. Uh, it gave me, uh, I, I got the lit fest happened and, and, and that gave me focus and uh, to do something. Mm. 
which wasn't revolving around me. I I needed to run away from that sort of focus light, yeah. you know, every yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I and anyway had sort of tried to run away from the market. I mean, not run away, but I was done with the market because the market used to dictate everything. Right. As a PR man, as a CEO, as a chairman, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, uh, I think when the festival also happened, there was a great deal of learning during the festival. During the festival, and I started recovering, and I just stopped taking the medication without any advice from the doctor. Uh, I sort of started absorbing many things. And I started also recalling a lot of things that I'd observed as a journalist, as a PR man, of yeah. how we work and how we function. And uh, that included more clarity on the marketplace mm. you know, and the constructs that we have. And some constructs are common across the world. Neoliberalism is, primary, is pretty much across the world in the same form, particularly US and India. Uh, the market and the power play is pretty much the same. Patriarchy is pretty much the same. It just gets worse in some parts, like yeah, like you know, in Delhi. Um, I I had written pieces already earlier about neoliberalism, market, climate change. I talked about power, and uh, the I'd, I'd, I'd noticed that you know, the people being left behind and left out, so minorities. Yeah. I, I started seeing all of these things that had some things I had written about a, a couple of, on a couple of occasions, but I had not fully gone out to say what I wanted to say because I was a company head and you had to be politically correct. You had to filter things out, you know. And uh, COVID was dreadful. Mm. what COVID was. It was dreadful to also see what happened on the streets in Delhi, uh, people losing jobs and everything. But there was also a lot of hypocrisy to see uh, at that point in time that there were people who used uh, the crisis that the migrant workers uh, in Delhi uh, and across India actually, that they had been put through due to the lockdowns. They used it as a, as a weapon uh, against the center, uh, against the dispensation at the center. And there were genuine people who cared, but the others used it for political reasons. So you mm. could see the hypocrisy because when those migrant workers, when uh, the person's working in your home, when they're building your homes and the contractors and the laborers, when they're there under normal circumstances, no one really cares. Mm -hmm. True. Right. So I could see the politics of power and politics of uh, uh, minority rights and how they play out. Mm. Um, so I was watching and absorbing all this at that point in time. And, and I felt I had to write a book uh, and this kept coming back to me. It was first in 2020, then in 21. Uh, 21, what I, 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 I started uh, thinking of equality vis-a-vis -vis equity and and started reminiscing my days in Thailand and how I found freedom there and therefore culture. They don't have all the laws that we debate here mm. for queer rights. Mm. But culturally, things are definitely much better than mm. in cities like Delhi. Mm. You, and, talk, um, you talk a lot, a lot about Thailand 
in yeah. Queer Sapien. And I and I think just for, for, for the audience's benefit, I think one of the, and if you wouldn't mind just unpacking it for a moment. So a lot of people uh, try and figure out why, why Thailand, what's so special about it? Why does it draw uh, people from the LGBTQ community, particularly um, to it? Is it just, you know, the availability and the freedom? Is it the culture? Is it the food? Is it all of those things combined? And I know you've been there numerous times. It's like your second numerous. time. Yeah. yeah. So t- tell tell us, sum up, because this is, I ask you the question, because we're talking about nations, we're talking about culture, we're talking about mindset, we're talking about rituals, we're talking about practices. And for the purposes of the West, Thailand is still East, call us ignorant, but we're still, it's still East compared to the West. Although different yeah. East. Uh, but what, that's what amongst is, the reasons. Yeah. That's well, amongst the reasons I talked about Thailand. Yeah. Uh, tell, tell, tell us about, tell us about what's so, what, what is the X factor? Uh, in in Thailand. So let me just finish the last yeah. bit of the thing. Go go so, go ahead. So yeah. I, I I the book was supposedly the working title was My Panrai, and that's a Thai term used, which means it yeah. doesn't matter. I read that, yeah. And and so there, the book was going to be a lot more raunchy. It was going to be more about sex and everything. But what happened with this book is it does have sex. It does have those things, but it's it's very different from what I proposed. But it, it sort of brought back all my years as a, as a son, as a cousin, mm-hmm. as a journalist, as a PR man, um, you know, as a curator, as a singer-songwriter, as an independent artist. This book brought all of those sort of uh, bits and pieces of my life together in terms mm-hmm. of making sense of certain things. Right. And, and <clears throat> that's it. And so... So why I, I, I looked at Thailand, because Thailand was the place uh, where I first experienced a certain kind of freedom and liberation out there. And as I said, it was the Maipanrai culture. Mm-hmm. I, I think somewhere I strongly believed that, you know, Asian cultures have a lot more to offer than mm-hmm. what we imagine. Um, I mean, even within the subcontinent, we have extreme liberalism sometimes on the wrong things and we have extreme conservativeness on things that we shouldn't be conservative mm, about mm, so mm. we have these extremes within the subcontinent and you have uh, certain states which are matriarchal uh, you have uh, you know a fabulous startup culture but you yeah. have failing large businesses and you have then the richest people living mm. and then also the poorest so mm. you know we have everything that you know sort of uh, but in Thailand, what I what I what I loved was uh, that it really didn't matter uh, whether you're gay or not. Obviously, I was a tourist, so uh, they also viewed me as someone who uh, was going to contribute to their economy. Right. But if if we have to look at contribution to the economy, then in the West, the question is that why didn't workplace inclusion have not happened much earlier? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure. Uh, so yeah. Right. And so. So, uh, and why why weren't uh, homes as open to to queerness? I mean, I hear stories from parents I know who've read straight to normal and they said, I wish, uh, you know, they talk about me uh, as you do to uh, uh, living uh, with your mother or, or the mother living with you, whichever way you want to look at it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they find that exceedingly surprising and then they find it even more surprising that the mother has accepted me. So, you know, uh, we have all of that, but we may not have the laws. We may not be safe on the streets. But in Thailand, I found a seamlessness. And again, 
I might be generalizing because I'm talking about Bangkok, I'm talking about Pattaya, I'm talking about Phuket, I'm talking about Koh Samui, I'm talking about Hua Hin and certain places. It may not be across the whole country. Yeah. But Theravada Buddhism, from what I understood and saw, and also the fact that they uh, are uh, matriarchal, some say it's matrilineal, um, uh, there is a very different power equation of families and responsibilities and uh, roles. The gender stereotypes don't exist the way they exist in the West. There isn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, an assumption of what the woman does, therefore, what, what the man does. Consent has been there for a longer time. They didn't have that language because they didn't speak English. Uh, so I found that absolutely incredible. And maybe because, uh, and, and that was four hours away. Mm. And at one point in time, the rupee and the Thai bath were pretty much even. I mean, now mm. the story has changed, but it was pretty much uh, the same. So you could, you didn't have to think about expenditure. But it's a privileged choice, right? I, I, mm. I have that income to go there. I have that income to stay at a hotel. I have the income also to pay for sex. Uh, I have, um, you know, I mean, I have that sort of privilege to explore mm. uh, the cities, the towns, the bars, the restaurants, the, mm. the queer spaces and, and the food and everything else. So, uh, you know, it's it just amazing. You, you know, my, my experience with, with, with immigration officers who were definitely one of, one was, was, was queer. Uh, like, I mean, I, I don't see that so easily in, no. in other places, in the no, stores. Yeah, uh, you know, bookshops having, you know, gender sections and, you know, you can buy gay books and all of that. It's just like uh, so easy. So, and, and the feedback I get was that it's so important because you don't have enough subcontinental reference points like Queer mm. Sapien or and other books, you know, you were referring to Queer Stan earlier and other books like that, but you don't have reference points of of uh, of Asian sort of intersections no, between subcontinent and Thailand. No, you don't. You know? Interest, interestingly, um, yeah, it's always a Western. It's always an American. It's always an American perspective. I mean, it's funny. So I just want to touch on that point. If you if you type diversity or inclusion into Amazon, oh my God, I mean, God knows there are hundreds. I haven't looked at the search the last time. Uh, for a while, actually, but there are hundreds and hundreds of books on diversity and inclusion. And, you you know, as you quite rightly said, a majority of those people who have written those books are from the Western world. Uh, a lot of them are women. A lot of them are white men. Uh, there's some, you know, peppered around who are, you know, people of color from other backgrounds. But it's so funny because a lot of these books, and I've read many of them, their manuals are almost like, oh, if you need to do diversity, you've got to follow these five steps or these nine steps or this four box model. And this is the problem. I mean, one of the great things about your book, this one, um, Queer Sapien and the past one, Straight to Normal, is that this is the personal, the lived experience. You're actually helping, you know, we're human. You're helping another human being to appreciate and understand what you went through, the ups and the downs. Only then can we break down barriers and connect, you know, because conceptually it's lost. I mean, the concept of diversity, the concept of inclusion, the concept of equity. I mean, it's it's just sort of people desensitized to it to a large extent. And I think you bring That's it to life. That's the word. That's yeah. the word. Yeah, you bring it to life. The, the time in Thailand, quick one, the time in Thailand, I wonder to what extent those visits, I don't know when you started them, had a- 2004. Play, 2004, right. So check this out. So 2004 to now. 
And yes, you are privileged. So it's, it's great you've acknowledged that because that was going to be one of my points. So it's, you know, it is what it is. You make the most of your privilege and you do the best you can with what you've got, which is great. I wonder to what extent that experience in Thailand informed your thinking, gave you the courage, gave you the benchmark, the perspective of something that could be different to your time in a city in Delhi, uh, in city in India, like Delhi or any other city. And um, I, maybe, maybe that has something to do with the brilliance of your work, as opposed to someone who's not as explored or as exposed to the rest of the world. I don't mean just the West. I also mean places like Thailand. Do you think that had a role to play? It definitely. I mean, you know, because when you start realizing who you are and that you can be accepted somewhere yeah. and that you can sort of uh, assimilate with the rest of the society without having to, 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 to carry any fears and doubts and phobias and hate and all of that, um, you, you, you know, that itself liberates you, you know, yeah. it's, and, and, and then you have something to look forward to and to compare with as well. Uh, because then when you, you, you start, you know, being able to, to sort of say that if that could happen, and if Buddhism is the offshoot of Hinduism, as they say, then what's wrong with us? What mm. happened to us? That's a question some Thai folks uh, asked me that you come from a country where Buddhism, uh, you know, took birth. Mm. So, you know, uh, you start realizing also the aspect of culture and religion and, and how they play out. And then mm. you come to the question of, oh, was it the colonization? What was mm. the problem? And mm. the Victorian laws that we carried, was that the only issue? Mm. Uh, was it uh, the Brahmanical patriarchy, as they say, or was it whatever else? You start, you see, the moment you start uh, feeling more and more comfortable, you have more space in your mind you feel you're not so clouded by fear right. to that extent right. um, uh, that you can actually start thinking yeah. uh, about yourself and your existence and therefore also other people in your community, yeah. but at least yourself to start with. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's uh, Thailand gives you, and places like Thailand give yeah. you that space, you know, that you can at least have those hours, that you can at least have that space, that you can at least walk in and out of places and not feel judged. Yeah. Um, and that, is liberating yeah brilliant. and i think it's 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 very difficult to to always explain it because even in this book i i say that it's tough to explain fear correct yeah and uh, and i and i take the context of Omar Shankar dikshit who you would have known too the freedom fighter because he could never explain fear to me what it is to be ruled so for but the difference as i could see was we are fighting our own but his his case he was fighting the british mm. he had one clear target we didn't know who was against us mm -hmm. and how many mm. right because it's, you're living with people who may not like you mm. who are phobic mm. and, and so the, all these realizations come through these sort of experiences where you do see some things that some things do work yeah and the yeah. importance of space the importance of a bar and not on one night of a week but through the week correct correct yeah i mean it's it is it is it is almost um Firstly, it's heartening to know that there is a there is an opportunity for many of us who are privileged as well to go and experience um, an environment that is uh, for a, a diverse community or a marginalized community today that may not be marginalized in the future. A good example would be in London, for example. And this is something I, I challenge, actually. I, I've been thinking about this. And so you think about gay bars. Right. And uh, like in London, in Soho, there are no, numerous bars. They're gay oh, yeah. bars. Okay. Yeah. Now, you would hardly find a heterosexual going into a gay bar. 
right? Now, why is that? Uh, so let's remove the fact that the heterosexual is not up for, for, you know, they're not there to find a date, right? Or Paul, they're just going for a drink. Why wouldn't they walk into a gay bar? Because their biases and their prejudice tells them that as soon as they walk in, someone's going to jump them, right? Uh, they're going to get accosted. Uh, another gay man's oh. going to harass them, or you know. And so that <laughs> that, that that idea. that of course, if people think they're you know there's the grand joy, you think you're actually hot enough to be pulled in a gay bar. That's that's yeah. another way of looking at it. But it's amazing that. Um, sometimes labels are problem with these divisions, and I get it. I get it. You've got to have a gay bar. I get. I get the concept. But I think somehow the next phase of this, right, Sharif, is also trying to make people who are not in, in that community. I know your battles are. You know, you're fighting loads of battles within the community as well. Those who are not in that community can feel comfortable walking into a bar, just a bar. I mean, just a bar. Why does it have to be labeled a gay bar or a hetero bar? I mean, the normal. You know the normal bars, the hetero bars aren't called hetero bars. So I mean, what what do you believe like when you think about Thailand and you say you can walk into this bar and that bar and it's 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 relaxed and so on. what what do you believe is is holding people back from doing that? I mean, what what have you heard you know from the feedback you get from people as to I, I wouldn't come to one of your parties because because um, here's the reason. So what what are you learning? what what are you picking up from people who are not gay? See, I think uh, I think it's largely heterosexual men who fear going into a gay bar because they right, just assume they're yeah. going to be here. That's just one. Yeah, I think as there's a there's a theory, and obviously not enough research has been done on this, but it's 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 also a comment that's made by another well-known Indian trans person out of the U.S. Uh, but also this is uh, this is what I, I I sense sometimes. I think there are a lot of men who fear experimenting also and they fear that they might land up doing so mm-hmm. um, you know uh, without drinking or maybe after mm. uh, I think there's a fear of fluidity also amongst heterosexuals a lot of hate there is a feeling comes not just from lack of awareness it's the la- it's, it's it's the it's the fear that people can choose mm. Mm. Uh, and that people uh, can live life differently, mm. uh, that uh, they can live also alone on their own. Yeah. It's even taken the West a long time to to appreciate and understand the fact that women can make their own choices. And uh, when they see more and more people making those choices, they fear disruption. And so I, I feel that some of these phobias stem from there, but people don't admit to it and they don't talk about it sufficiently i think people don't step back to see that and because mm-hmm. everything has been straight laced correct uh, for a really really long time well not only that we need to understand that industry revolves around those structures particularly financial services insurances etc housing mm-hmm. there's just so many other things that revolve around that one similar structure so it's it's like it's nice to keep that going because it's from you're something you're comfortable and familiar with yeah uh which is why you get dragged into and i say dragged into the same-sex marriage debate rather than anti-discrimination first yeah. and civil rights you know yeah. because yeah. then you retain the structure uh you you also look at equality so that it's equal to man so you will compare an indra nui with a man rather than the choice of a woman mm. Mm. right 
beyond mm. just the workplace alone. I mean, and workplace, why? Why does she have to be a CEO? Why does she have to be X to prove anything? Correct. Yeah. Or why, right? So I, a lot of these fears come from these very fixed structures. Okay. As far as having and needing to have gay bars, it comes from the fear and the hate um, and the violence that takes place at times when queer folks appear in their full-blown avatar that they want to be. There is a discomfort with what they wear, you know, which which uh, conservatives call flamboyance. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we call it flame, full mm-hmm. flame burning. And uh, so, uh, you know, there is that. So the moment you, you need that safe space then, you need also a sense of belonging. Also, people who are going through the journey of coming out and getting comfortable with themselves, they need those sort of spaces to come there. We, as a minority, are already used to heterosexuals. We have to live with them. So we are not that uncomfortable. But there are people who get uncomfortable, even coming to a, a straight-dominated bar. Mm. And uh, uncomfortable to the extent uh, where they may be found out if they come with someone else. So there's that discomfort mm. uh, which, which also appears from there. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, also comes from there, actually. Um, so, so there isn't a, a very straightforward answer to why all of this happens because there isn't been enough discussion uh, across the world on these fears and these phobias. There's been more time spent on trying to prove scientifically our legitimacy, right? Uh, and I don't think in the West and the Western courts, uh, unlike uh, in, th- in the case of 377 or, or, or the criminalization of homosexuality here in India, that a book was used as part of evidence, which I referred to earlier, Same Sex Love mm-hmm. in India, yeah. which goes into uh, even the Islamic India that is called Islamic India period where there is enough evidence of queerness Mm-hmm. In, in in history and in and in so so you know we don't we we are not we are not discussing enough yeah we're yeah. just wanting templates and boxes and, and and things like that so we don't address culture so you so I do say in this book that we have all the laws possible let's say on corruption or women's issues except marital rape uh, uh, but we don't have the culture that makes those laws irrelevant. Mm. Mm. So mm. corruption continues. Mm. Indeed. Big way. It, 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 there's, a, there's a small anecdote I wanted to share with you. And I'm just, you know, you can comment I'm on sorry it. After, I'm sorry after I, I go all over the place to answer. No, it's, no, it's fantastic. I mean, it is, it, it is a, it's a discussion. It's a, this is how we learn about one another and educate the rest of the world. I recall just going back to uh, India for a moment, and talking about when you just describe the culture in India and then Thailand and how the, the the folks in Thailand were confused as to why why it was the way it was because it was the birthplace of original birthplace of Buddhism and so on. When we were young children, I remember growing up in India till the age of nine. And when you think about proximity, physical contact, then boys used to hold hands all the time. Still. Yeah, and still, and uh, I mean, if, if you sh- if you share that in in the West, uh, you'd be people would be appalled. They'd be like, "What? Are you serious? Why?" You know, and so on. And you know, I remember doing that with my friends. So, in a way, I find it interesting that uh, when I don't know why, and you know, whether your sexual 
makeup has anything to do with it at that age because it starts very very young or it influences it I don't know but actually if you think about it we were very comfortable physically boys and men were quite comfortable with each other and girls too with one another right so it was very common to like hold hands walking down the street going from one class to another in fact even now when you go onto some of the streets in in India and different cities and townships you'll see two men just holding hands and it was funny because I, I one of my trips in India I, I took a family member over and she was observing and you you know who I'm referring to and uh she was like, oh, my God, this is a really open culture. This is not yeah. the Indian that I know of. You know, people are people are fearful of expressing their um, yeah, sexual preference. I was like, hmm, interesting. I never looked at it from that standpoint. So, yeah. well, I mean, I, I don't know if you ever thought about that for a moment. I have. And I have. Uh, actually, in my first yeah. book, in my yeah. first book, I talk about my, my, my first experience was with uh, a servant boy. Right. And then in that conversation with him, he told me it was quite common to, you know, to be intimate with other men, to have sex, etc. But eventually we still get married, was how he put it. So now I don't know whether to put it, call him bisexual. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you want to say he's bi-curious. You know, these kind of words mm-hmm. that we've adopted from the English language, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and these terms. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's very interesting that I've also seen and, and I'm not the only one, that at many gay parties, we had a lot of married men. I mean, some of them, obviously, it's it was the social stigma of coming out and saying you're homosexual or you're attracted to men. But there were also a lot of bisexual folks around. Uh, and there were also some sexually frustrated uh, folks who were just ready for any kind of sex possible. Yeah. You know, available. Because we've had also stories, dreadful stories of, uh, men having sex with a cow and a dog and whatever, you know. Mm, mm. So I, I think the idea of sex and sexuality in some Asian cultures and subcontinent is very, very different. Uh, there are arguments that certain words don't exist in certain languages uh, in the subcontinent. But there's a counter argument, uh, you know, to describe LGBTQIA plus and mm. now twenty or. I don't know how many more sexualities have been identified. Mm. Uh, but uh, but the counter-argument to that is that uh, there was a point in time that, uh, that you know, sex was just anything. It could be, mm. it was absolutely sort of fluid. There is an argument mm. uh, of that. and But the predominant uh, sexual act was between opposite sex. Mm. Uh, but that didn't, I mean, but that was linked with procreation. Mm. And the idea of family also was very different. I still know certain tribal groups where uh, kids are, are brought up by by a variety of family members and non-family members, by, by communities. And uh, it, it's not only the responsibility of the biological parents. So the question of adultery may be looked at very differently mm. out there. So, uh, So it's, it's you know, uh, it's it's difficult to to explain, you know why and why have you know uh, gender stereotypes uh, become so calcified in our society, uh, particularly in in cities like Delhi. Can't say that for all the cities really. Um, you know why is it that uh, uh, men have certain privileges that uh, that 
that women don't. Right. You know, uh, why is marital rape still being discussed in the courts today? And why isn't consent of, uh, of any significance or importance in marriage structures uh, in across the country? Mm-hmm. So, so we have these extremes. We have this physicality. We have these guys, things that happen. Uh, there are stories I've heard of many married men, happily married, uh, marrying out of choice and not, out, not an arranged marriage. But they've had sex with men earlier on, mm. too. Mm. And I've had women come up to me after open house discussions that used to take place in, in the office at Integral when I was running that. And came to me, Sharif, you know, I've wanted to try it with a woman. So, you know, we, it's a very strange sort of culture. And, and I think it's very important that when we look at sex, sexuality, instinct, love, choice, we need to have many lenses and it cannot be a Western lens alone. Correct. And the reference points can't be entirely only the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that's what I heard, like when people say, oh, no one wrote about Thailand, like you've written about it from a gay context. I mean, there have been books on uh, of people who've traveled through and talked about sex in there, but in the way that I've sort of put it as part of my life. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I, I think uh, we need to dig into history because, you know, I mean, I don't want to limit it to the Kama Sutra because as Seema Anand, who lives in London, is very well known uh, in London as well. And she's got a huge following and she talks about pleasure and sex. And uh, but she revisits sex, uh, Kama Sutra in a very different way. But in one conversation I had with her, she was saying the thanks the British for having documented the Kama Sutra, but the focus at that point in time, because of the prudishness of the British, uh, was only about sex and sexual right. positions. Right. But she says she looks at it as pleasure, and she believes that that book was written by a woman to tell the man how to please the woman. Yeah, it makes so, sense. You know, it's imp- yeah. Right? Now, and so she looks at sex as an art form. Mm. Whereas we've grown up with a very colonized idea of sex and something we don't talk about, mm. but we've retained it and held it back as though the British are still here. Yeah. And the British, and whereas British, Britain has changed so much since, you know, and so we seem to be stuck on time. And so we've forgotten the aspects of pleasure. Yeah. Um, and we've, we've forgotten the fact that within as Dave that would, you know, has done a beautiful presentation at the Rainbow Lit Fest also, where he not he just doesn't go to Mahabalipuram and, and, and the Kajuraho temples and talks which has like, you know, sexual acts, men having sex with men, threesomes, foursomes, and God knows whatever else is all out there to be seen at the temple. Uh, which is unimaginable, let's say at a church or a mosque or Mm-hmm. even a Buddhist temple or various other religious uh, sites anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. But it's there to be seen and it's never been removed. You know? And then there are androgynous uh, individuals you see in some of the temples in the south where you would imagine that it's the shape of a woman, a voluptuous woman, mm-hmm. but you find a mustache. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is that trans? Is that non-binary? Is yeah. that trans? Is that what? What was the word used? Uh, people are still trying to search in some cases. So there is enough history that needs to be, you know, pulled out for people to start understanding sexuality, 
choice and pleasure all over again that they don't then look at two men holding their hands and just coming to a conclusion that they're gay or bi or whatever. They're just uh, being uh, nice to each other. They're at least, uh, they're not not being hateful, you know. They're not, Mm -hmm. you know, taking out a dagger and, 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 you know, kicking each other. Uh, You know, uh, someone asked me about a kitty party, which is like basically women getting together and meeting and, uh, and, you know, playing games and having meals together. It doesn't mean that there's a group of lesbian women or women who hate men and they're all feminist or something like that. But no, you know, so you have to, you have to start engaging with diversity to start understanding that, uh, that uh, each word doesn't mean the same thing and you can't be so definitive in your meanings of everything. Yeah. You can't put everything into a box. Uh, yeah. I think the light lies in that engagement and when you're out of that box. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, you, you you hit the nail on the head, and I think um, it that sort of allows us to segue into this area of time flies by so very quickly. I can talk to you for hours, of course, and days. Let's talk a little bit about you know the the, the words you just used, engaging uh, with diversity, and let's move our attention to the big companies in the workplace. And the reason we we want to talk about them is because they employ millions and millions and millions of people. And those people come from different backgrounds and those people are generally dissatisfied with how they're treated. You know, long story short, you can throw in COVID as a big enabler for a lot of these people to find themselves, to discover who they are and to figure out what is important to them, whether it's spending time with your family, dropping the kid off in the morning, expressing yourself, you know, um, fully not being fearful of who you are and all of these other factors and all of these other points of liberation have been uh, enacted and have been executed. The big corporation is struggling, frankly, you know, whether it's the CEO, the board, the HR officer, the diversity officer. In, in, interestingly, in the last um, uh, data point I was, I was reading from one of these consultancies, we can take it with a pinch of salt, but I think it made a lot of sense. It's clear that diversity officers, you know, chief diversity inclusion officers, have been resigning from their posts or being fired or whatever it may be. And the number was ridiculous. 35 to 40% have left their jobs uh, over the past many months. And the tenure on average is about 18 months. Whereas the C-level tenure of any other functional leader is anything between four and six years. Okay, So something is grossly wrong, screwed up in the way they've been treated in the way they've been given responsibility or not, and so on and so forth. And that's another discussion. But I think when you boil down to it and you come and you and you, you know, cut through all the the noise, one of the problems here, and you touched on it uh, so beautifully earlier on, is this lack of compassion, empathy, and even interest, frankly. I mean, let's just call it curiosity for the sake of making it sound great. It has to be curiosity which starts with curiosity, where you're trying to figure out why is someone thinking and doing the way they are? And how do I integrate them and make them feel comfortable and accepted? Because they're a fantastic designer. They're a fantastic salesperson. They're a fantastic PR guy. And the fact that they come from a different racial background, gender, sexual preference, even neurocognodiverse, um, you know, background, shouldn't shouldn't mean that I'm not going to put them forward for a presentation uh, or for a promotion, or I shouldn't mean that actually let's not invite Sharif or Af to that meeting because, you know, you know, should we invite them for drinks at night? You know, this concept of belonging inclusion, I hear this all the time. 
you know, from, from people. So this book that you've written, I mean, I feel, and, you know, please help me build, build the story further. I feel that the way you've written this book, it's sort of a fantastic read, most importantly. You know, it's it's not a with the greatest respect to all the other books. They're frankly boring because they go through those models and the techniques and the steps. And of course, who would be interested in that? I mean, it's like the cure for insomnia. This, on the other hand, is a a compelling read. I mean, a Netflix movie, perhaps, I'm sure in the future. Um, But it's allowed it's and I haven't finished the whole book, but it's allowing me and with my my mind and, you know, I've my mind is open because of the work that I do and the projects that I'm involved in. And, and even with that, I'm learning and I'm thinking about things. I'm thinking, oh, that's a, that's a good point. And I'm, it's allowing me to put myself in your shoes for a moment. Um, this needs to be a mandatory read for executives. Have you managed to take this to the boardroom? Are you presenting this to the executives and companies? Are you helping them understand what this means to, to them and their employees? See, a few companies have reached out. So I've had talks in December, I've had talks in Jan and, and, and things like that. And then yeah. there are a few orders which have come, you know, asking for a couple of hundred books, uh, some corporates, some events taking place all the way up to May as well. Right. Um, but yeah, I haven't really pushed it out there. But, you know, getting back to your points, <clears throat> there's an inherent problem, I think, uh, in this world of making money. Mm-hmm. I think when the focus is making money, then money is the focus. How you get there, uh, the mechanics, the templates, the various uh, correlated industries, uh, it's sort of a coterie and sort of, it's a form of cronyism. They all work together and to achieve their bottom line. And we've got, I think as a society uh, uh, in India too, in India too, uh, but I really look at the U.S. Although from a distance, it's and the multinationals and some of them. I hear the stories. What you say of stress, of anxiety, of all of that, you know. And they all seem to be caught on a treadmill mm-hmm. running, and so all they see are those digits. Have they got the? Have they got the? Have they got the? pretty much in the same place actually, but they haven't really moved as people, as humans. What's moved is that data and the statistics in front. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not changing their lives at all. I, and so this is gonna be a bit of a longish answer. I think there's a, the inherent problem with the corporate world and not to blame anyone who's in those positions right now, and uh, I think with the idea that the men had to be bread earners and bread winners for the longest time across yeah. the world. Yeah, that's a big problem. Right? I've, I've, I mean, there have been ads even from ketchup companies in the 60s, but now we've got a cap which women can also open. <laughs> Seriously. So, so that's, that's, you know, and then we celebrate one woman who it's grass ceiling and, you know, it's like, oh, and then we discuss equality and because they have to all be equal to the man. So you don't disrupt the structure right, of the home, yeah. in business, in financial places, in parenting, in schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's one long thing. Now, I say right in the beginning of the book, if I 
given a choice, I would love to remove the hoods from manhood and womanhood and let the truth prevail. Mm. Okay. Mm. Now, the man has had to live with that pressure all the time. And then the banking industry, the debtors, the investors also put that pressure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's getting screwed, man. He's going to become heartless. Mm -hmm. I mean, become heartless as did happen with most industries. They had to start thinking of appearing to be caring. So social responsibility happened, appearing to be caring. And also the social responsibility for a lot of corporations, at least in the Indian context, I can say, was always something that benefited the business or the image. It was never right. done with heart. Yeah. If it didn't for heart, it wouldn't really matter. Right? People benefit. Mm. People benefit, they're happier in that place. And I'm not just talking about LGBTQIA+. They become more creative. When they become more creative, they change the things that are made, how they're consumed, and their utility in the world. They'd be perhaps be more caring towards nature, as we see with the younger population, right, more conscious, yeah. Yeah. right? Even conscious about identity, you know? As much as we might fight and say, oh God, they don't want to work, they only want to work these many hours. So what, just because you've done it and you've, you've, you've raped the land, yeah? yeah? For all these years. Yeah. So you're saying to work less, and earn a reasonable salary is not good because you're so, so used to that structure. We're scared of changing that. Mm. So, so you know the so the woman even when she moves into the workplace, she has to live up to being that man. Mm. And even if she doesn't want to be, I mean, there is there is research to show that they seem to be more emotional, they're more sensitive, they're more caring because they can understand certain lives. But at the end of the day, when they also want to succeed and there's only one idea of what success is, which is bottom line and all of that and brand value and things like that, then mm. they fall into the same space. So you don't change anything. Mm. So mm. they also suffer from so many similar problems and not that the man comes home and still looks after the children or the home in the same way. Mm. You know? And you have to be extremely privileged to have help to look after that and then say, oh, we're both contributing to that and so it's equal. Um, mm. We've lost equity. Equity comes from understanding all of those things you just said. You were talking about a neuro disorder. You're talking about a disability. You're talking about queerness. We're talking about race and color. We're talking about language. We're talking about so many other things. Okay. Equity is missing in these debates and these discussions. And equity is to understand lived experience and those differences. That when you start doing that, then your entry points into a corporation, into education systems change. It's not right. the same measure. Otherwise, what happens is if today I were, or let's say 10 years ago, I was employed at another place and talking about having a inclusive environment, this thing would be, uh, you know, was trending. Like everyone say, oh, and I have gay employees or I have, oh, I have a trans person and everything. They'll hang you outside and say, oh, look how inclusive they are. But that's because I had a certain education. I speak a certain language. I come with a certain privilege. I've been a journalist. I have a network. I have all of those things. So I fit into that structure. The only difference is my sexuality. Right. Yeah. But I will produce pretty much the same results. Yeah. But, but equity is to understand that everyone doesn't produce the same results. Yeah. yeah. And for them to produce certain kinds of results, they need a certain environment. So until you start getting down to the very basics of humanity, you yeah. can't change that workplace. And there is a problem also, another problem. 
the obsession that we built over the last 30, 40 years of size. When you create these huge behemoth sort of organizations, and all you do is to bring in systems and processes and filling in forms, filling in this and all of that stuff, that you want everyone to become like each other. Yeah, clones. Clones. So I talk about the aesthetics of control. It's like where we am, where I'm living now, in a gated colony where every blade of glass is the same size. Each bush needs to fit in, in a certain way. Right. Each tree has to be trimmed and to a certain height. Yeah. Um, and uh, we know where that came from. Yeah. Most of the gated colonies came from the US to keep certain sections of society out. The Hispanics, right. the brown skin, the black community to keep them out. You know, that sort of security and safety mm. in one sort of form. Mm. Mm. Right. It's like hotel rooms. You pretty much know where everything is because they're all the same. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And they have to throw in several other things to change the experience and say, oh, have, the experience is going to be different. You have this, sorry, I don't interrupt, but you have this, um, this potentially favorable, positive movement. And I've interviewed many who are either pioneering the movement or involved in it in some way, shape or form, which could be called different things, you know, purpose over profits, conscious capitalism. It's got different names. And having spent so much time with all of these people, we're all saying the same thing. I think the, the positive, like, let's look at the positive note. The positive thing is we're having the discussion and we realize that something's not working. Something's broken and it needs fixing. It is broken. It needs fixing. And we haven't quite agreed whether we all believe that the solution set to fix these problems is similar, common, or in fact, it's okay, okay to be local and localize those solutions based on, you know, the region, the, the country, the group, the function, the sub-function. You know, it doesn't have to be, well, group just rolled out this DEI strategy. And now what we've got to do is every function has got to roll out a substrata of this strategy. I mean, screw that. It doesn't make any sense because it is a com you're dealing with human behavior. You're dealing with human beings as opposed to AI. And so going back to your point on systems and certainty around processes, size, scale, the obsession with size and scale, which again, we know where that's come from. And of course, I, you know, I, as an observer, I see that in India too. You know, I see yeah, that happening. You, you in create India homogeneous too. systems, right? You just want everything to fit in. Right. Right. And, and you prefer that. In fact, if you are a disruptor or a maverick or a misfit, and you might be the most brilliant in your work, I'd rather not have you in the mix because you're not compliant. You're incompliant. Yeah. Right. And, and what's bizarre is the idea of uh, compliance. I mean, we've, we've become obsessed by it, but I think we need to go back to like, like I have two children, as you know, a little one. And I yeah. see, you know, my little boy stand up and fall down, stand up and fall down. Now he's walking really well. But what, what is what did that tell me? It told me that actually failure and experimentation and trying shit out constantly and not doing well at it, but keep trying is just the way we're built. Even children do it all the time. That's how they learn. For some reason, somewhere along the way, and maybe the education system and then work has told us ah, that you, everything that happened before this age doesn't matter anymore. Forget it. Now, now the real stuff starts. So you've got to follow these rules, dude, because if you don't follow these rules, you're not part of the game. And so you're a minority, you're marginalized, you're not part of the system. I'm not going to give you a welfare, whatever the hell it may be. And I think um, 
I think with the corporates, again, going back to the work you're doing, I think the corporates are missing soul, Sharif. They're missing um, soul. They're missing humanity. And they're so caught up. They're so caught yeah. up in getting shit done. You know, the concept of let's just get it done. Let's just do it. So what do we need to make it happen? What do we need to make it happen? It doesn't work like that. You've got to take time to understand what you're going through as an employee. Yeah, and I, I love know, I want to just, you know, yeah, so go I ahead. Just read something. Yeah. Uh, this is from my epilogue. Yeah. Uh, this is from a journey of understanding myself. So I say it has been about being aware that the world would be better if people could move freely rather than only goods and products, sharing lives, resources, wisdom, culture, and ideas. Yeah. That the acquisition of all things material often took us further and further away from people, cultures, the diversity of heart and love. It was to comprehend the fact that everything globalized and nationalized in the name of one world and one nation is usually about scale, control, and the homogeneity that is enforced through it. Yeah. So I think that's what we've, we've, we've as some nations have, uh, the world has sort of, you know, this whole thing of one. Mm. There is one world. Mm. But that's the earth as we're talking about it. But there is no one in the way people are looking at one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because been, that's it, like limiting, it, limiting the ideas of how you run a business, how you run a home, what is family and what isn't family. You yeah. Know? And what are friends and what are chosen friends and what is chosen family therefore? So the ability to sort of move away from those, I think is it's happening as you're saying, there are experiments taking place, but I have a lot of faith in uh, the startup culture. Mm. I have, uh, as long as they don't fall into the same trap. Yeah. But I have, I've also faith in the young who are relooking at how we lived. Yeah. You know? I have faith in, in nations and countries which are re-looking at work hours, right? Uh, I, have, uh, I have faith in some of the companies and corporations are spending on training because if you're expecting a trans person who's lived a life on the streets, just as an example, not all on the streets, mm. okay, but many of them, who are abused every day in their homes, if they have one anymore, don't have the economics to even get three meals, but seek a job. They have the potential. They don't know what that potential is, but they have the potential to do something. There is no way that anyone in this world has potential to not do anything. Yeah. You know, you know? So that's where equity comes in to understand that life. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I see if, if corporations, as I would say, in India, in the Indian context, I'm saying, subcontinent, and that some other countries would have been through that as well. Yeah. Could spend on captive power, <clears throat> could spend on training MBAs who came out from certain other institutes, mm. who could spend on training and doing, you know, grooming and leadership training and all of that. Why can't they spend on skilling of people a marginalized community to realize that they don't have the same education that has been the benchmark that you've used. You know, when you start doing that, you're bringing in a different mind into the space, into the workplace. And when you see society changing and we see the young changing, the consumer set out there in that marketplace as well, so I'm talking pure business here, are also a different set. Mm. I've heard from parents just uh, on Saturday at the Times Web Fest, 
saying that, you know, my children are coming and collecting me on environment, they're collecting me on pronouns, on identity, on don't decide that just because she's a girl, she's going to find a guy. Mm. She could be non-binary, she could be mm. uh, in love with another girl, she, just let her be, she knows yeah. better. Yeah. You're on the you know, So they're hearing that sort of, so that's a consumer set because they're going to, they're going to consume, right? They're going yeah. to have income or they already do also, yeah. you know? So you have to think of that world as well when you're purely looking at it from a business point. You have to not pick up people like Sharif and then say, oh, I'm inclusive. Yeah. You yeah. have to change the entry point to, to, and I think you made a point on something where we were using language. There's so many corporations who are talking about empathy and, and purpose. So first need to start with admitting that we didn't have a purpose other than business earlier. Now we want to start discussing and start looking at, you have to listen yeah. to who you want to include. Yeah. Don't decide for them. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I when totally you talk agree. about em- yeah, you have, when you talk about empathy, you have to listen because you're not been through the same journey. That's a fact. So I'll never talk about trans, the trans community. I can't talk even, you know, about the larger gay community because my life does come with a certain privilege. It does come with a certain background, a certain journey, right? And there are others who've maybe had it much, much better than I have and or millions of times worse than I have, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so we have to recognize the beauty uh, of nature. Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me, as we come to a close, it reminds me of um, going back to this point of empathy. And I, I want to leave us with this point. And of course, um, I then come back to you for the, the final um, thoughts on, on this discussion today. I was having a lunch with a C-level executive in this company uh, and who re- remained nameless. Anyway, we're having this really good lunch and then we started to drink. We had a couple of glasses of wine, which is good fun. And he's, he started to open up quite a bit. And I we were talking about conscious capitalism. So we were just talking about this issue and the systems of the past. When did it happen? Who triggered it You know, in the 50s? What was the economic policy then? Who was the president? Why did we do it? Et cetera, et cetera. And you know where, where we're going with that, of course. And he, he was listening and we were having a good discussion. And then he sort of interrupted me. He shocked me, actually. Um, and he said, because we were talking about empathy. We're saying leadership, empathy, uh, leadership, in, inspiration, leadership, compassion, leadership, da da, da 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 And he said, can I say something to you? I said, yeah, go on. He said, do you realize how privileged you are? And this is, you know, again, idea of privilege. He's a C-level executive in a big company, listed company. So I would think he's more privileged than I am. He said, what makes you think that I have the ability to do any of those things? Yes, I'm the CEO and I'm the leader. Okay. But what makes you think that I can be compassionate? What makes you think that I can just turn on empathy on tap? What makes you think that I'm just, I just wake up and I just inspire, you know, I, what, what makes you think this? Why have you put all this uh, responsibility on me. What, why, why do you have these expectations of me? And I said, well, not me, but of course, because you're the leader, you're, you're at the helm of the company and so on. He said, on the top. yeah, but he said, have, has anyone ever, and this is going back to the root cause of why adoption and acceptance is a problem. Has, and any, has anyone ever asked me whether I have any of those things in my home life? Whether I have empathy, whether I have compassion, whether I have care, whether I have support, whether I've even got love, 
It's not, it's almost like a given. Oh, you've got it all. Now you just come to work, you switch the button on and whoop, off you go. And he said, and that's the problem because no one ever asks whether those dysfunctional executives actually have any of this on tap. You assume that, oh, they just, they wake up in the morning, they go to the gym, do their meditation, they pray to a yogi, they come back, geared up, they give to charity. I mean, they're just like, you know, they are yeah. in the life. True. But he said, I, I don't have the ability to do what you asked me to do. I have the ability to run a company. I've been taught to do that. I can do it well, but I don't have the ability to listen to Sharif. I don't, I can't empathize with him because I've got too much pain to deal with. I've got my own issues. So how am I supposed to think in the way that you think that I should be thinking in when I don't have the tools? I'm not even in that place. So why I say that to you is because, you know, just cutting some slack for the executive uh, yeah. or the executives in these companies. They're yeah, that's not, what I said also, yeah. manhood, womanhood, you know, you need to remember Correct. all of that. Correct. Those expectations um, around that. Because we're all just human. And so I just want to read this bit out because I think it's brilliant from your book. <clears throat> in a, this, is not, this is the Indian published version, so I haven't got this, the one from Germany. So in the inner cover, in the inner flap, uh, you've got this Engineered question. differently. Is, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> is it localized? Is queer only about sexuality, question mark, or uh, is it a state of existence? And I love just this paragraph. I'll try my best to read it. Uh, in its truest form, nature is queer and queer is free. Nature is queer when water takes the form of oceans, lakes, rivers, rain, snow, steam, dew, and every other avatar it chooses and expresses itself through. It's queer when the soil takes the shape of a hill or a mountain or a ravine. Queer is when one tree doesn't force another tree to become its clone and every flower finds a place under the sun. Queerness lies in the consciousness that if left free, if left free, everyone becomes more rooted in their existence and stronger in their individuality. So that is, I love that paragraph. Of course, there's much more there, but I think you sum up what it means to be queer and this, this book does justice to it. I've had a fantastic dialogue with you today. Thank you for coming on the show, Sharif. There's so much Thanks, more to discuss and debate. Yeah. And I hope you found it useful, but I'd like just 10 seconds, 10 seconds of how this experience has been for you. I know you do many shows and you speak um, on many forums, but I'd love your your uh, feedback on how today went for you. No, I think this is it's fantastic because I think the, the lovely thing of, of straight talk is, and the conversation we've had is, it allows fluidity. There is no definitiveness to the structure and that we can move between the workplace and society and home and being oneself, man or woman, you know, whatever sexuality you might have. And I think that the ability to just have a conversation, yeah. uh, which has a structure obviously to it, but it's yeah. not so tight. Uh, so you feel sort of free and relaxed to talk and share. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm happy. I'm happy that you've you yeah, felt yeah, that way. And yeah. That's the intent. And so before we go, uh, this is your second book. Are you planning a third? Well, I've had thoughts for the first time. I've had thoughts uh, of a third book, yeah. I mean, okay. But I don't know what. I mean, there, there are some ideas in my, and not all are queer. But one book on parenting would be very good. Yeah, oh really. gosh. My very child much, is queer. Very much so. 
Yeah, no, very much so. And I, I didn't raise that point with you, but, but I just want to say before we close off again, a lot of my time is spent informing and educating other parents, friends, family members, and, 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 and like, on the possibility and the probability that their child will likely be in uh, an LGBTQ uh, category, let's just say, because they understand that, or will have other preferences, other sexual preferences. And you're not going to believe, well, you will believe, but even to this date, it's an uncomfortable conversation, even if it's a bit of a, a light conversation. And I always say, listen, I've got two children, one's four, one's going to be two. I am convinced that my child will, they could be heterosexual, they could have other preferences, who knows? And they could go through different phases of their lives, just being different than themselves. I, as yeah. a parent, have to just accept and embrace that, in fact, and enjoy it. And love the child regardless, support the child regardless, give them emotional security, make sure their self-esteem and self-worth is top-notch, and give them the self-confidence to battle, because they will have to battle society, whether you like it or not, in our lifetime, and another 150, 200 years. I mean, that report from World Economic Forum on gender parity. 132. Yeah, like 132, 135, probably increase. Who knows what's going to happen or decrease. I think it was 100, and now it's 132. I mean, it's depressing anyway to know that, you know, we'll be dead and gone, but we, we get to some level. Maybe my kids will too. So maybe the generation after the generation after generation. So we're setting the foundations. We're laying the foundations. And you're doing such a wonderful job of doing that, uh, Sharif. I've uh, I've really enjoyed the discussion today. It's been an honor and pleasure. Go off, uh, be the creator and the change maker that you are, and keep in touch with us. Come back, talk again. And if there's something that's burning and there's an issue that you believe needs to be, you know, transmitted out to the rest of the world, then we're always here, happy to listen and happy to collaborate. Um, thank you, Sharif. With, with that in mind, thank you very much, listeners. If you do Thanks. enjoy the show, thank you. If you enjoy the show, click on the bottom right, uh, subscribe, press the bell so you get notifications, and we'll be back very, very soon. Sharif, take care. Speak to you soon. Ciao. Ciao. Take care.